Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. You are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. My name is Tom Butler. I'm joined as always by Brendan Duffy. Hello. And Tom Wheatley. Hello. And this is the second part in a two-part special covering the life and career of Sir Sean Connery, the first film actor uh, to play James Bond. In the first episode, uh, which you can find uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, we covered his life and career up to and including the making of Goldfinger, his third James Bond film. This episode, we will cover the rest of his life and career. Obviously, uh, he made a few more James Bond films, Thunderball. Um, you Only Live Twice, and then Diamonds Are Forever, and then Never Say Never Again. Um, and then obviously he went on to have a hugely successful career afterwards. Um, but I would say at this point, um, if you have listened to the first part and, and, uh, and are going to listen to this one, we are barely scratching the surface of Sean Connery's career. Would you agree? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's he, plenty more. I, he, his career is just ridiculous. I mean, just... I mean, he obviously started late, as we discussed in the last episode, getting James Bond when he was 31, which really started him on his career. But he was a massive star right up until, like, you know, the noughties. Um, it's crazy. And, you know, he just had such a such a huge career beyond Bond. I'd say, I mean, he's the biggest star, out, biggest James Bond actor um, beyond Bond, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah it's it's... I, I always forget because obviously we're big Bond fans. I always think of Sean Connery as Bond, but to a lot of people, he was everything else he did was just as big. Some of the some of the films he did, especially in the kind of eighties and nineties, were phenomenal successes. Well, I was thinking about this as well, and I was thinking actually, as a child, I was probably first introduced to Sean Connery as the bald, bearded, elder actor that he was when. You know, probably seeing him in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that was the film that really introduced Sean Connery to me. And it was really only later on that he he then became James Bond to me. So for some people, he is that he is that actor rather than being the James Bond yeah. actor. But um, yeah, yeah. Let's, without further ado, dive back into his career. But like I said, we are really only scratching the surface. Um, and um, yeah, we'll just try to do 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 the great man justice uh, in this uh, in this upcoming episode. 
So first, I'm going to kick off with a little bit about what he did outside of outside of Bond. Um, chronologically, I'm starting around the time of um, Goldfinger and Thunderball, where we left off. Um, I'm going to cover. There might be some overlap now, so just you know, bear with me on that. So he he made five films with director Sidney Lumet, and this is off the back of wanting to step away from the roles that are similar to Bond. He wanted to sort of stretch his um, his acting muscles and try different things. Um, and he found a director, an American director, Sidney Lumet, who you know he got on with, which is sometimes can be rare in in this industry, and. Connery wanted to be treated seriously as an actor and and as an actor, not as James Bond. And this desire led to these five films that he made with Sidney Lumet. And the first one being The Hill in 1965. Um, And this was released in between Goldfinger and Thunderball. And it takes place in a British military prison uh, during World War II. And it's about the officers trying to break the soldiers down and build them back up into proper soldiers and you know make a strong army and the hill is basically like a a punishment it's this obstacle course which they're all ordered to run across and uh in the boiling hot sun in libya uh so connery yeah he plays joe roberts he's a sergeant major and he's been convicted for beating up his um commanding officer uh struggles with authority which makes his life a bit difficult and um he there's there's tragedy within their ranks and this is a a a role that the the director said i told connery i'm going to make brutal demands of him physically and emotionally and he knew i'm not a director who has too much respect for stars as such he also added that the uh, the acting, the result is beyond my hopes. He is real and tough and not smooth or nice. In a way, he's a heavy, but the real heavy is the army. So a very stark, sort of gritty performance from, from Connery and highly praised by the actor. Then he went on to make um, the Anderson tapes, which is released after You Only Live Twice. So if I skip ahead here, we're going to then go back to the Bond. Um, so yeah, he re- reunited with Lumet and they made a crime drama. And it, it basically, it's, it, it mocks, it begins by mocking Connery, how Connery's portrayed, basically, uh, in his sexuality. Um, again, another role where he can sort of have fun with it. The Offence was then released. Now, this was part of, and I'm going to touch on it again as we move forward. It was part of when they got him back for Diamonds Are Forever. This this was one of the films that he was granted to be able to make. And it's about a police officer who snaps while interrogating a child molester in, in custody. And his performance was praised it didn't get much, you know, people didn't really go and go out and see this. Um, but Connery said about this role, I'll be interested in how the public takes it. Some people may detest my character. The British have always been so anti-analysis in every sense of the word. 
but this film goes into analysis of why this detective became what he is. Sounds like a film that's a bit ahead of its time, really, um, exploring a character in that much depth. Um, then he went to went on to make Murder on Orient Express, and basically Lumet wanted a murder wanted the murder mystery to have an all star cast, so he wanted everyone on that train to be famous. Something which actually Kenneth Branagh has done in the uh, the remake more recently as well. Everyone on on that train is is a, yeah, a big yeah. name. So yeah, Connery was the first one they got on board, and then that snowballed. So because he could get Connery on board, he could get other actors, and surprisingly, um, the way in terms of payment, he gave him a hundred thousand dollars and a percentage of the box office taken. So relatively, sort of small fee. Um, but then other people wanted to work with Lumet and Connery. So you had a- Albert Finney playing Poirot, Ingrid Bergman, John Gielgud, Anthony Perkins, Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York. So it, it really is a a who's who of Stella. Yeah. Stella. And it was nominated for six Academy Awards as well. So, you know, this this is probably the most successful collaboration together. And, um, yeah, it was a critical and commercial success. It was huge. Um, the last one was Family Business, where Connery plays a character called Jesse McMullen, who is a veteran rogue. Uh, and he's proud of the sort of the way he's lived his life. Um but it puts him sort of, there's a bit of tension with his son, who uh, is played by uh, Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman did live that life, but went straight when um, his son was born, played by Matthew Broderick. And yeah, that's uh, basically wants to, Connery's character wants to tempt his grandson into a life of crime. That's the, the main gist of that there. And uh, so, yeah, that's... Um, five films worked over over a period of over 20 years so it's a quite substantial collaboration just taking it back to the hill i thought it was quite interesting looking into that 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 was the first film that he appeared without his wig oh really so Mm. very much a um a a, a statement of intent i think in terms of wanting to be taken seriously as an actor and you, you know showing his true colors and stripping it stripping it back which i think is quite interesting and sort of shows where connery's head was at between you know goldfinger and thunderball we we know that thunderball was one that he he wasn't that keen on making and 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 Mm -hmm. was was tempted back but um yeah i thought that was an interesting i wonder whether people knew that he did he was losing his hair at that point i don't know yeah because there's certainly not you know Bond wears a wig, Bond has hair. So I guess if people have only really seen him playing Bond. Yeah. And in Marnie as well, you know. Full wig. So yeah, then uh, taking it back a bit, he he made Thunderball. Yeah, Thunderball. So in the history of Bond, Thunderball is probably one of the more debated areas of, um, of the whole series and especially Connery's career. I think a lot of the time we talk about well, I talk about definitely Goldfinger being like the peak of Connery where everything just clicked and he he had everything in place. He was confident, the storyline was great and all that kind of stuff. And I think Thunderball for a lot of people, including me, is it it drops again. It You lose that quality that you had in Goldeneye because of a few factors. Um, the film cost $5.5 million, uh, and Connery's paycheck for it was $200,000. Um, so he was getting paid quite a lot of money at that time. 
um, to do Thunderball. Apparently, only Elizabeth Taylor was getting paid more than him at at the time. Um, but as we know from Connery, money was always a big issue for him, and never more so than at this point in his Bond career. Because as we know, in the final few films of of Connery's, money was a really really important factor. And uh, uh, Diane Chalento said that um, Connery was wasn't relaxed about his financial status. The more successful Bond became, uh, the more insecure Sean felt. So money was becoming quite a big issue at this point. But I think there's a, there's a key in all of the kind of research I've done on Connery and, and all my understandings is that he's got this constant balance of you've got the money on one side and being successful in that way. And then you've got the art the other side and it's a constant battle that where he's he's trying to he's trying to get both right, um, and we know that you only twice Blofeld, Little Nelly, all this kind of stuff. It's a very gimmick-driven fantasy film when it comes to Bond. It's moved quite far away from sort of from, from Russia of Love um, style, and that was something that was quite a big issue on um, on the film, especially for for, for Connery as well, um, and. He said that um, there, there's a report that talks about how Connery knew that things were going wrong. Uh, he told David Lewin um, partway through the shoot. I can't remember who David Lewin is. Worked on the worked on the film. Uh, we have to be careful where we go next because I think we've reached the limit as far as size and gimmicks are concerned. Um, all the gimmicks now have been done. What is needed now is a change of course. More attention to character and a better dialogue. So you can kind of see where Sean's head is at there. He's he's he wants to get back to the acting side of it. It's it's you can just kind of read there what his thought process is around that. So, yeah, there was it was a tricky film, I think, um as 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 the it commenced and obviously we know it got got worse as it it went towards um um you're in it twice and eventually times are forever. Um an interesting thing about Thunderball is the uh, you'll all know this the shark tank scene uh, after we read the script Connery um, saw the sequence with the sharks in Largo's pool um, and said that Ken Adams built a set that has a plexiglass partition between the pool half, half of the pool and the other half where the, the, the shark is um, but it wasn't a fixed structure so one of the one of the sharks managed to get through it Connery jumped out the pool um, scared of actually getting attacked by the shark so that was quite an interesting. That's Connery. Um, it kind of shows where he's at on that film. Uh, one of the big issues with uh, Thunderball was press intrusion as well, and this obviously crops up later along. And in especially in You Only Live Twice as well, the, the press stuff got ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the film neared its conclusion, um, Connery was getting increasingly annoyed with the press intrusion that, that he was seeing on the film um, and, and at the same time he was he was dealing with the, his issues with his marriage as well with um, with uh, Chilento so quite a lot of pressure on him at this point um, and he refused to speak to journalists and photographers uh, who who came to like his home um, and talked about his frustration and his harassment in the role he said I find that fame tends to turn one from an actor and a human being into a piece of merchandise a public institution well I don't intend to undergo that metamorphosis um, 
so he didn't give after Thunderball or during Thunderball he didn't give any interviews at all nobody could get hold of him for any sort of TV interviews or, or magazine interviews apart from one which was Playboy which he did an amazing interview have, you, have either of you read this interview? Yeah, well, I've got some of this to, uh, later on in the research because it's, it's the famous interview that um, nearly scuppers his career many times down the line, isn't it? It's the um, yeah, and I, I believe he only gave the interview to Playboy because it was a follow up to an interview that they'd done uh, previously, and so he'd agreed to do it from the set of yeah, and the Thunderball. first one was think- in a pub. Yeah, that's right, and and the only t- it was the only interview that he gave on Thunderball, and and you know Ian had flown out all this all these journalists out there, and they all just wanted a piece of Connery, and he just said no, but he did give this one interview yeah. that would later, you know, really it would just have lasting implications for the rest of his career. Oh, it's it's brilliant. It's such an interesting one. I I started reading it yesterday. If you if you if you're listening to this and you want to read it, go to John Connery Wikipedia page. It's in the it's in the um, links at the bottom. You can get you can find the original article but it is massive and he says so much about everything his career is and the the interview is really pushing him for some stuff and he gives full answers to everything it's really surprising I, I expected him not to kind of go into that much depth but it's a really interesting interview and it covers a lot of stuff that you probably wouldn't expect him to talk about um including things like where he was at with the film series he talks a little bit about his next you know going about the next films he talks about the fact that he's film starring in on a major secret service and all this kind of stuff so it's quite interesting to see where he was at that point he talks a bit about uh casino royale uh, they ask him about casino royale and that because that at this point that that was being made the 1967 film he says that he says i did i i find it interesting to see what someone else does with it lots of people could play him or bond no reason at all why they shouldn't which i thought was interesting didn't seem to mind that they were making it and um he gets asked quite a bit about being typecast and he says um, he gets quite annoyed on this one. He says, let me straighten you out on this. The problem with interviews of this sort is to get across the fact without breaking your ass that one is not Bond, that one was functioning reasonably well before Bond and that one is going to function reasonably well after Bond. There are a lot of things I did before Bond, like playing the classics on stage that don't seem to get publicised. So you see, this Bond image is a problem in a way and a bit of a bore, but one I've just got to live with it. Um... So yeah, really interesting interview. Um, Thunderball obviously did very well. It was one of the most successful um, Bond films that existed. Uh, the reviews of Thunderball were generally positive. Um, uh, I think the, the Times, Sunday Times says the cinema was a duller place before 007 and the Financial Times actually criticised it saying it's not just that Sean Connery looks a lot more haggard and less heroic than he did two or three years ago, but there is much less effort to establish him as a connoisseur playboy Apart from the off-handed order for Beluga, there is little of that comic display of Bon Viveur bon manship that was one of the charms <laughs> of Connery's almost a gentleman 007. I don't know, what, what, what are your, what's your view on Thunderball and Connery in it? It's a, it, it's a, it's a long film, Thunderball. It is overstuffed um, and... I think just from the opening gambit with the the, the jetpack, you can see it's just taken a leap beyond what what we've been used to. The underwater stuff's fun. Um, it's not my favourite. We went to see it at the BFI not long, well a few years back, right? Yeah, I thought I'd seen it at the cinema. I've always loved Thunderball, but I think it's probably because I I watched it as a kid. Yeah, and I think it's a very good kid film. It's a it's a family film, isn't it? It's not a dark spy film. But I, I, it's it's such an area of debate. I mean, you get like View to a Kill and stuff, which people 
you know give bad reviews for but some people absolutely love Thunderball and some people hate it it's such a, a, a massive divide between people's views on it yeah I'm not really a fan of it um, and I think also because on the back of those first three yeah. for me for me they're they're undoing some of the good work that they've they've put in yeah yeah but for some people that's we've said this before with the with the Blofeld podcast that is what they see from Bond. They 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 want to see the volcanoes. They want to mm. see the ridiculous baddies, and they want to see you know little Nelly and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's definitely a a, a fence on the fence film for um for we'll, the series. But um, we'll cover it in much yeah, more detail I, when we get to the letter T. Right, we'll do a whole yeah. episode on Thunderball and talk about it in much more detail then. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's uh, but the for Connery, I think it's it was the start of the um. That that coming off that peak of Golden uh, Goldfinger, mm-hmm. yeah, and really that whole uh, Thunderball era really marks a change in in the whole cultural landscape. Really, Bond has just become so huge at that point, and that's sort of indicated by the the, the swarms of press that were going to the set when they were filming in the Bahamas. And as you said, Thunderball was then the highest grossing Bond film ever. And it still is one of the highest grossing ever. It earned $152 million worldwide. And according adjusted for inflation, mm. um, this was done 10 years ago, but adjusted for inflation then it was $1 billion. And it was the second most financially successful Bond film after Skyfall. It was since, that was since not mm. to third place by Spectre. But like the spy business was absolutely booming in those years, 65, 66. Um, There were spy songs in the charts. There were books being published about, obviously not just about spies, but now books being published about James Bond. You had John Pearson's um, Ian Fleming biography. You had the annuals was starting to come out. Kingsley Amy's, uh, Amos's the, the James Bond dossier all sorts and then obviously then there was parodies and spoofs all sorts of stuff's coming out on top of it and it was really like the bond books were doing bumper business as well on a majesty secret service which was which had come out very recently was had sold 1.5 million copies it was the first million selling paperback in the uk you saw uh, you know toys were being manufactured this is this is really when bond had, had started to become a, a marketable product um, Fleming himself had got back into the spy game, creating the Man from Uncle, um, which we might cover at a later date. Mission Impossible was 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 doing booming business on TV, um, and actually in 1966, when Thunderball, uh, sorry, in um, uh, in the year after Thunderball came out, they released a double bill of Do- Doctor No and Goldfinger, which which did huge huge numbers again. So it was just a mad, mad, mad time. I don't think. Like you could compare it to the superhero craze of today, um, but this is like in the book um, James Bond: The Legacy. I don't know if you, I mean you, I know you two have got this book, but there's like a sidebar, and it's just a whole list of like fifty films that mm. came out in sixty five, sixty six that were all spy yeah. related. It's crazy, and Connery was living in the middle of this as the focal point of it, and you can see when you really think about it, why he was getting annoyed. I think he felt like he was getting underpaid, unrecognised for the work and just not getting the credit he deserved and also being sort of typecast, being stuck in the roles that he probably didn't want to do. And he turned down a lot of stuff, I imagine, at that point. But when Bond came calling again in 67, he was he was ready and waiting. Yes. Um, you only live twice. 
in which for this one he was paid seven hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, with also some with twenty five percent of the merchandising profits. So merchandise beginning to play quite a big part, like you said. Um, but the producers at the time, they were facing a problem. They, you know, Sean Connery was his interest was waning. He was getting tired and he, of playing Bond and he was being quite public about it and quite open and all the commitment to do with, you know, to do with Bond. He got the shooting and then the release and the promoting it and he just, he found it relentless. And then he was, then there was the, um, he was finding more, his relationship with the producers was, was grating more and more. They did get him back for this by increasing that fee for the film, but they were already starting to to know that we're going to have to look for a, a replacement for this. Um, and during the filming in Japan of this, they that he did announce that he would retire from the role of Bond. So it was it was officially announced by him, and um, he said it started out as a joke, but then things got out of hand. Everything becomes magnified. None of us could have foreseen how this would catch on. I admit it, it done more for me than any character has done for an actor in history. But if you'd been asked the same question day after day for four years, how would you feel? So you can hear in an interview answer like that, he is fed up with the same questions. And he he wanted, um, he wanted more privacy. He just didn't see it as fair that this, this should be allowed to happen and crowds would follow him around in Japan just to see to see the film being shot and there was one guy that was following him everywhere with a camera police had to be you know called and had to deal with these things happening they were hounded wherever they went there was a picture of him on the toilet that went um into into the press um and and so yeah he that's when he got fed up and it pushed him over the edge and then he announced that he wouldn't return uh, he showed up to a, a, a t. Uh, he showed up to a, an interview dressed in just a t-shirt and and trousers, um, basically normal sort of everyday clothes, and not wearing his wig. And the interviewer said, "Is this how James Bond dresses?" And Con- Connery didn't like it. Said, "I'm not James Bond. I'm Sean Connery, the man who likes to dress comfortably." So everything coming at him is just rubbing him up the wrong way. Um, and he actually had a sixth film on his contract so this this was his fifth and there was a sixth on there but with all of the the bother that he was getting in Japan the producers scrubbed that sixth one off to try and sort of calm things down um, the atmosphere during the production was you know he, while he, re- he remained professional but he He'd grown bored with the role, and then his cast fellow cast members, Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell, Maxwell had had starred in a, a James Bond knockoff. This is part of the spy mania. You know, it's another another spy uh, operation, Kid Brother, nineteen sixty seven, and that's with Neil Connery, Sean's younger brother. And obviously, you can watch you know, that on YouTube. I think. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> but he'd he'd expressed his you know how unhappy he was at this about his his cast members doing this sort of knockoff um so animosity grew on set as well with 
other cast members. Um, so yeah, there's real problems. I mean, it's not all bad. There is some some like good stuff. Alf Ramsey brought the England World Cup, the 1966 World Cup squad to meet Connery. So that's that's good. That's a positive. Um, they had to cut the top of the Toyota. Uh, let's cut it off because Sean Connery was too tall. He's six foot two, and it was only built for people who are five foot eight. So that's the one Aki drives, a, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, and Daniel Craig says that's his favourite Bond car ever. Really? Yeah. Ah, fun fact for you. How did you find that out? What's the point? How do you know that off by heart? <laughs> Listen, I've been researching James Bond non-stop for about four months now. It just stuff just falls out of me now. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the 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 views of uh, the film, people could see in his performance that he was sort of lacking the excitement, and people were saying. Um, there's a review in the in Chicago Tribune that said a large percentage of you only live twice is disappointing, lacking wit and zip, pace and punch of its predecessors, especially the first three. Connery's enthusiasm for his shrewd, suave and sensual character seems to have waned. So maybe he, how he feels about the character is seeping into the actual performance. Um. And he also said, one of the reasons I stopped doing it is because I got really fed up with the space stuff and the special effects. I just found it getting more and more influential in the movies. So, yeah, I mean, he's clearly had enough of it. He's said that's it and he's he's left the role. That's it. He's done. He's finished with Bond. Never to play him again. Never to play him again. Mm. So, then he goes back into doing some other films and it's I found when I was researching the um, the films he did after You Only Live Twice this is a, an era of Connery which I didn't really know a lot about I don't really know any of these films so I won't go into too much depth with them but if you know any of them explain more about them but I, I doubt you do uh, 1967 The Bowler and the Bunnet no, no never heard of that one um, oh actually that was a Scottish television documentary programme on STV Directed and presented by Sean Connery. Ah, uh, yes. Um, it's about um, dock workers, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's the only film ever directed by Connery. Interesting mm. fact there. Um, I've not seen it. Um, might try and find it somewhere. 1968, Shellaco. Heard of that one? No. Uh, Western. Uh, yeah, British-German Western film starring Sean Connery and Bridget Bardot. Um with uh, shooting in uh, Almeria in southern Spain. Um, and uh, who's he got? It's Stephen Boyd, Jack Jack Hawkins, and, and Honor Blackman. That was the one that was interesting in it. He was he got back with uh, Honor Blackman. Um, didn't get a good response because, obviously, at the same time, there were the spaghetti westerns, which were the Italian westerns which, which were going in on uh, in uh, Sergio Leone. Um with like Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood and stuff like that. So it had a bit of a problem in the fact that people didn't like it as much as those, those other films. Um, the red tent. Heard of that one? Arctic explorers one. Yeah. Crash ship of the airship Italia. Yeah. Yeah. In the I've Arctic, never seen that yeah, one. I think it is. Yeah. Nominated for a golden globe in 1972. Best uh, English language foreign film. The Molly Maguire's 1970. A mining film. <laughs> <laughs> You tell I've read a biography. You've not seen recently. it, have you? I've not seen any of these. No. 
No, no. So this is what I'm saying. It's a bit of a strange era for for Connery because obviously he's picking up. It's a when we talked about Connery before Bond and we talked about him doing like he was like a, an actor for hire, wasn't he? He was just doing anything. He, one day he'd be doing a Disney film, the next day he'd be doing something like that. But here you can see he's picking films. He's choosing films because he he wants the quality. He wants to he he wants to be an actor. And some of these ones like Molly Maguire's, he's with Richard Harris, and um, it's like a really. Like proper historical drama that he's he's chosen to do. And then you've talked about the Anderson tapes as well. Um, so yeah, and and so they're all pretty much all the films he did over that period after You're Only Here Twice. They're they he's chosen them for a reason. They're not he's not just doing them to for for a pay packet. Um, but as we've said, he didn't necessarily. Oh, uh, it, it wasn't the end of his Bond career, but. Um, Another thing happened in his life after uh, after this period of films before he got back into Bond, which is his split with um, Cilento. Yeah, obviously we covered Diane, his relationship with Diane Cilento in the previous episode. Um, uh, 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 she was also an actor. They got married in Gibraltar, um, had Jason together. Um, but their relationship at this point post um, You Only Live Twice was beginning to get strained. The couple had moved to Putney and... Um, and they were just spending more and more time apart. Uh, Connery was acting. Diane Chalento had published a book. She was also acting. They worked together on a stage play together that Connery directed and Chalento starred called I've Seen You Cut Lemons. And the actor Robert Hardy, who's known Connery for a long time um, by this point, and played the lead as it was sort of a two-hander between Diane and, and, and Robert Hardy. I think they thought it would sort of bring them together as a couple, but uh, it don't. It didn't really. It it reviewed really badly and only ran for about five weeks. Um, so that was Connery's sort of directing stage. Um, so then after that, Connery flew to Morocco to take part in a golf tournament. Obviously, we know he got into golf on on Goldfinger and and really became his his primary hobby. But he flew to Morocco to take part in this tournament. Um, while he was there, he met a lady called Micheline Rockabrun, and she's a Moroccan-born artist who lived in France with her husband and three children. She's also a very keen golfer, very good too. Um, and her husband was there with her, but uh, he finished. He, he didn't play very well in the tournament. He left the tournament after he'd finished. But she went through and actually won her tournament, as did Connery. Um, and it was, you, you know, in the after events that these two sort of came together and met Micheline and Sean. Um, She later said that she was madly in love with him at first sight. She was unimpressed by the name Sean Connery. His fame like really meant nothing to her. And I think that's really what attracted Connery to Micheline as well. Mm. They spent a few days together and then they both just flew home. And I think at that point they thought they would never see each other ever again. Just a a, a passing affair, you know, away from home, uh, both of them you know, just really making the most of, of being at this tournament together. But she never thought she'd hear from him again. But three months later, he actually called her to say that he hadn't stopped thinking about her. Um, and then at that point, he moved out of his home in Putney into a new place in London. Um, and Connery later admitted, you know, his relationship with Diane was blighted by the demands of their busy careers. Um, mm. And... We'll just have to bring this up very quickly here. He, they basically they do later um, um, settle their uh, divorce, um, and I'll I'll talk about this in a little while when we talk about his marriage to Micheline. Um, but 
obviously he knew at this point in his career that he's going to need some big bucks coming in to be able to pay off Diane to reach a divorce settlement. And so obviously when Eon came calling for Diamonds Are Forever, it came at a perfect time. But as I sort of hinted at earlier, his relationship with Diane um, it becomes very important later on uh, because of this interview that he did uh, on the set of um, Thunderball and the question from Playboy. They were really pu- pushing him and really asking him questions. And he was responding almost in the character of James Bond. So they really yeah, wanted yeah. him to answer in as James Bond and get his thoughts as James Bond. So when they asked him, how do you feel about roughing up a woman as Bond sometimes has to do? Connery replied, I don't think there is anything particularly wrong about hitting a woman, although I don't recommend doing it in the same way that you'd hit a man. An open-handed slap is justified if all other alternatives fail and there's been plenty of warning. And it goes on and on and on. He keeps saying, I mean, he just keeps digging himself into a hole with with these comments. So, but he's he's sort of talking about his own views, but through the prism of how they relate to James Bond. So it's kind of hard to know what his what the truth is behind what he's saying. Mm. Um, but in the Diane Shalento's book released in two thousand and six, My Nine Lives, she said that Connery had actually been quite violent with her and and had once knocked her out, knocked her unconscious. Um, and it, there was another interview that Connery did later on with Vanity Fair when he talks about. Um, that women are looking for confrontation and that they want to smack. It's all very uh, distasteful stuff. And obviously domestic violence is no joke for anyone. Um, And it really haunts Connery, these, these words as they should, because they're dreadful. Um, Hmm. But it's hard Hmm. to know what, obviously what the real truth is behind it. Uh, He later, it's it's difficult to, it's difficult to read them because obviously nowadays, you couldn't do anything like that it wouldn't it wouldn't be but you can imagine in those days i'm sure i've seen interviews with other people where they've said stuff like that but just because of the people they were it never really nothing ever came of it but obviously he's had this big legal battle with chilenta and everything so it just muddies it really makes it really difficult to to kind of to work to wade through but yeah it's it's definitely um i i, I just even you know, even then, it's you just seems strange to say those kind of things in an interview, even if you're in character, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Later in 2006, this is fast forwarding quite far along. He was due to appear in Scottish Parliament in 2006, but they actually cancelled his appearance because of the controversy around the, his 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 words about um, smacking women. And it, this thing followed him for the rest of his life. But in yeah. 2006, in an interview after the appearance was cancelled Connery told the Times I don't believe that any level of abuse of of women is ever justified under any circumstances full stop so that was his final word on it the the statement was misjudged I think he'd come to the realisation that what he said was very very wrong very bad and you know just he shouldn't be saying those things in the public sphere or even thinking about them in a in a private one um but yeah just thought i'd mention that so he's basically the point is that his relationship with diane salento ended and later on she wrote about how you know he wasn't very good with her um and they weren't very good together as a married couple but we'll move on to his future with michelin in a, in a little while So, George Lazenby has just made his first Bond 
in a seven-film contract, but he's only done one, and his agent has told him not to do any more. So the search for a Bond is on again. And after asking a number of people, they've got no luck, including Michael Gambon, who said he's just in no fit state to play the role, which I thought was uh, quite funny. Mm. Um, So the United Artists, uh, the guy who's in charge, David Picker, he wants Connery back. And so he said, money's no object, just go and get him. And they coaxed him back and it only cost them $1.25 million. So what an absolute bargain. But they've got their man and on the March, uh, March the 2nd, 1971, David Picker announces that Sean Connery will be returning as Bond. Um, worth noting that Connery did give away his whole salary for this um, and helped set up the Scottish Scottish International Education Trust um, with Jackie Stewart and it's there to financially support uh, Scots who want to achieve a better education so yeah he commanded a giant fee but it, it all, all went on a worth, worth fair play Connery yeah I think this is one of the things that it's, I only know this because over the past year or so we've been researching Bond so much but it's um it's almost common knowledge in the bond industries uh, in the bond community that this is that he did that which is an amazing thing really yeah um a lot of people think that oh he did diamonds of rubber for the money mm-hmm. but it wasn't for the money was it it was well there was, there was other reasons for it I, I mean i don't know if you're going to mention this brendan but he also negotiated a back-end deal so he got the huge money up front but also i think he stood to make a lot of money from the profit sharing right yes yeah he did um 12.5% so of the US gross. So so it actually turned out being $6.75 million in total. Um, but it's, I mean, it's shrewd business, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, he's, he's well, this, if, if he had any view of Connery being a businessman, Diamonds Are Forever is it. Yeah. So during production of Diamonds Are Forever, he actually dated Jill St. John and Lana Wood. So that's that's plenty of uh, Tiffany Case. Tiffany Case and plenty of tool, um, uh, but due due to height difference, his scenes with Lana Wood, she had to stand on a box for for her scenes with Sean Connery. So mm. if you check out those scenes, <laughs> not going to see the box. Um, so because of Connery's high fee, it did actually have a knock on effect to the production of the film which I'm sure we will cover when we get to Diamonds Are Forever, which is not too far away. Um, mm. But it meant that a lot of stuff was stripped back in terms of like, the special effects. Um, so something you can you can see on screen when you watch Diamonds Are Forever. I think they got a cut oh, price yes, Blofeld definitely. as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no offence, Charles Gray. Well, did, didn't even have any makeup for his face. Um, and Sean Connery had a lot of fun shooting in Las Vegas he said I didn't get any sleep at all we shot every night I caught all the shows I played golf all day on the weekend I collapsed boy did I collapse like a skull with legs um, <laughs> he, he played he played the slot machines and he actually delayed shooting one scene because he was away collecting his winnings um, so he really did get into the Vegas style 
He had a great time, didn't he, doing Diamonds Are Forever? Yeah, definitely. A much better time than most people watching it. (laughs) Um, So following that appearance, he turned down a salary of $5 million to appear in Live and Let Die. So you can see they were keen. They've got their man back. They just want to, you know, hang on to him. Oh, I'm so glad they didn't. Um, So he turned up with the premiere... He's turned up to the premiere with a guest. Who do you think his guest was? Or oh, you might know. His mum? I don't know. Who? His Roger mum? Moore? No. I thought you said Roger Moore. You would have been right if you said Roger Moore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he turned up with Roger Moore, which um, created speculation that Roger Moore would play the next Bond. Very interesting. Mm. And then, yeah, one of the last things he sort of said on Diamonds Are Forever is, I've always hated, hated that damned James Bond. I'd like to kill him. That's a famous quote that um, people, a lot of people reference, but showing his disdain again, you know, for a, for a character that just made him six and a half million dollars. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, widely sort of critiqued film. I don't think there's many people that are, uh, think it's fantastic. I'm sure it's got its it's got its fans, hasn't it? But um, for me, it's uh, it's a low it's a low tier Bond. I'll be honest. I'll, we watched it recently, didn't we, Butler? Yeah. I'd say recently, in the last couple of years. And before we watched it, I in my head, I, th- I thought it was a great film. And then I think it's maybe another one of those ones where you see it when you're younger and you love it. You actually watch it as an adult and you think, oh, actually, it's not, not really that good, is it? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I, if you'd asked, asked me two years ago, I would have said it's one of my favourites. Yeah, you just like the song. You don't it's like a great song. song. I do like, I do like the song, actually. <laughs> great song. So after Diamonds Are Forever, there's a bit of a gap until he uh, Connery gets back into the Bond saddle in a way again. Um, and this gap's quite a big one, 1972 to 1983. I'm not going to go through all of the films that he did in this period because he was busy in this, this period. Prolific. He, um, he did 19 films between mm. 72 and 83. And um, and there's it's a bit of a mix. And there's some great ones in here, absolutely brilliant ones. Um, I picked out some of the key ones. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, we'll go through it again like, and ask you if you know them, because you should. Uh, 1974, Zardoz. Oh, yes. Have you actually seen this? Because I've never seen it properly. I've seen clips of it, but I've never watched the whole film. No, I, I intend to watch it, though. It looks great, doesn't it? John Borman. Uh, Irish-American fantasy film about a post-apocalyptic world where uh, these barbarians worship a stone god called Zardoz. Um an interesting line here. Uh, it has the power. He has the power to grant either life or eternal um, death or eternal life. And uh, in the opening scene, declares the gun is good, the penis is evil. Um, apparently, it's a matriarchal film. Huh. I've not watched it. But I, I, we, sh- we should watch that. We'll do that at some point. But that will be our when we do a Bond night. That will be our one of the clock in the morning. Fall asleep to this one. Uh, but apparently, Burt Reynolds was originally given the role, uh, but he pulled out due to illness. So Sean Connery got got the role after him, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, 1974, Ransom Nils, no. film about terrorists. Um, never heard of that myself. Sean Connery and Ian McShane, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Those two together wouldn't have put in that. Uh, Murder on the Orange Express, which um, Brendan, you've already talked about. The Man Who Would Be King, ah, which is obviously, sorry, yeah, his greatest film probably. <laughs> Oh, it's an absolutely fantastic film. I think it, that's the film. That's the film he said that he thought he deserved an Oscar for when he later when he later does win his Oscar. Yeah, 
uh, as, as him, him and Michael Caine um, starring in the Rudyard Kipling novella um, of the of the same name, and it was it was massive at the time. That film was enormous. I think my dad still talks about it. Uh, but it was nominated for four Academy Awards: art direction, writing, costume design, and editing. So pretty big deal. Um, uh, after finishing off with Bond, nineteen seventy six, Robin and Marion. Have you seen this? No, but I want to though. Yeah, it's an interesting one because he's obviously quite old in it, and um, mm-hmm. it's got Audrey Hepburn in it as well, who's also quite old playing Lady Marion so it's an interesting twist that you wouldn't expect at, at well, it's that. Robin returning from the Crusades isn't it yeah yeah which um, is especially in that era of cinema it's not something you'd expect to have these kind of older actors playing those those roles um, again absolutely massive role it had a massive film it's got uh, Robert Shaw as the Sheriff of Nottingham Richard Harris as uh, Richard the Lionheart and Denham Elliott as uh, Will Scarlet obviously they'll meet again later in, a, in another film um, 1977, A Bridge Too Far. I haven't. I've never actually seen this. I'm not a big war film man. Have you? Have you? Have you seen this? No. So this was. Um, this was a big one. Uh, massive ensemble cast war film. Dirk Bogart, James Caan, Michael Caine, Edward Fox, Elliot Gould, Gene Hackman, Anthony Hopkins, um, Lawrence Olivier, Robert Redford. I mean, ridiculous. Like if you just said to me, give me a list of the top actors in this, the 70s, it's probably all in that film. And at that time, war films still doing pretty well. 1979, the first great train robbery. Train robbery again. I've never seen this. Have you seen that one? No. Um, yeah, yeah that's a big one. Uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, Leslie, and Down. Uh, and then 1981, Time Bandits. Um, and have seen obviously that. That's so quite an eclectic range of films over that period. He's really kind of putting his neck out and trying a lot of stuff and some really good stuff um, when we get into the next round of his films it changes a bit he's clearly not as interested in just doing great films what happens next in his life not his career so then uh, he gets married to Micheline Rockerbrune Sean says um, later, in, in the early years, it was difficult for us to see each other. She was still living in North Africa with her children. So obviously we know she was living in Moroccan born and was living there. They both said that when they first met each other, they barely even spoke the same language because uh, I think obviously she must be French speaking. But Diane and Diane Shalento and Sean's divorce was granted in October 1973 after they had lived apart for two years. The divorce settlement included a payment to Diane and a trust fund for Jason Connery and Diane's daughter, Gigi, who Connery had raised as as his own, basically. Um, And actually, the terms of the divorce have been kept private and never been publicly revealed. And that's just very much Connery likes to keep his private life private. He's done the right thing there. He's obviously paid off Diane and set up uh, Jason for life. Um, by doing all these film roles and earning all this money. So he then marries Michelin in May 1975. He marries her in Gibraltar. Funnily enough, is where he married Diane. And they married it totally in secret. And actually, the press didn't find out that they had got married until months later. And at this point, he and Michelin move out of the UK uh, to Spain, Um and this is where he sort of becomes a tax exile and he can only return to the UK for 90 days at a time. Uh, Connery said, what happened, he said, was that the British government was taking 98% of my income in taxes. I was making nothing but money 
and I was virtually broke and I finally moved to Spain and he stays with Michelin for the rest of their lives they never um, uh, have children together but they have a you know really nice relationship he looks up brings up her three children as his own um, and when we get to his final days then um, yeah she'll resurface again in, in the story um, but yeah I guess the, the interesting point is there is that he's moved out of the UK because of the money situation the Tories are in power no sorry the Labour are in power and they were riching taxing the rich very heavily and so it just wasn't working for him um, and I imagine that plays into his next decision also yes yeah, so he's back playing Bond again um, but this time not for Eon so we are gonna I mean we mention it nearly every episode Kevin McClory has his name again and we will cover this in greater detail um, but never say never again it, you know it's had its origins back way back in the 60s because um, there's contra- controversy about the Thunderball novel the story who owns the rights and it's it's been split um, so they get they actually get to working on a on a on making it this time and they want to make it and put it head to head with Moonraker and this is in 1978 so this is that's what they're aiming for but again it, it sort of that's halted uh, down to more legal battles so it's put off a bit more and and then eventually they do get around to getting something together um for 19 for a 1983 release um, going up against Octopussy and so Connery was on board working on a script and, and uh, working behind the scenes with it at, from an early point but he said I first worked on the script with Len that's Len Dayton I had no thought of actually being in the film so even though he was involved in the project and he was going to um, be on board producing and playing roles behind the scenes he didn't think that he would come back and do it again play the role again um but producer jack schwartzman asked connery to play bond um and they negotiated a fee of three million dollars um based on him having casting approval script approval and a percentage of the profits again as he did with the the previous two eon productions so in terms of the title, it's actually his wife Michelin that um, she she comes up with this title because, and and also convinced him to play the role. He was thinking about it and he said, Michelin encouraged me to think about it carefully. Why not play the role? What do you risk? After all these years, it might be interesting. The more I thought about it, the more I thought she was right. There's also a certain amount of curiosity in me about the role, having been away for it so long. And because he'd said never again, twice, she, twice, yes, <laughs> um, yeah, they changed the title. It was going to be called James Bond of the Secret Service, but it underwent one final change. And she quite like that. She suggest, yeah, I like it as well. But, but his wife suggested never say never again, because he'd it, said never again. And Warhead was the title at one point as well, wasn't it? Not so uh, Warhead yet. So Sean Connery had a lot of creative input in this one and 
that is one of the reasons why he decided to do it. Um, he was responsible for the casting of most of the the main actors: um, Max von Sydow, Edward Fox, Kim Basinger, Barbara Carrera, uh, all picked by Connery. Um, but production on this was troubled, and it meant Connery was taking on more and more production duties. Uh, with the assistant director, David Tomlin. Then there was tension on set between uh, Schwartzman and Connery, who were barely speaking to each other. Connery was unimpressed with the perceived lack of professionalism, and uh, he's on record as saying the whole production was a bloody Mickey Mouse operation. Um, I always found that an interesting uh, phrase, because Disney are pretty successful, aren't they? So... (laughs) Um, and then he he did speak about it more more recently, um, in why he saw it through. You know, despite all these problems, he said, "What I could could have done is let it bury itself. I could have walked away with an enormous amount of money, and the film would never have been finished. But once I was in there, I ended up, ended up getting in the middle of every decision. The assistant director and myself really produced that picture. So it seems like he he's got pretty invested in it, you know, emotionally as well. So he wanted to get it done and get it out. Mm. Um, I wonder if that's partly to do with the octopusy. Well, Goodness. I've got more on, on, on that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. um, during uh, training for the some of the action scenes, he his wrist was broken by Steven Seagal. Ooh. But he didn't realise it was broken until a decade afterwards. So <laughs> that's... Uh, Tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just living with a broken wrist. Um, Barbara Carrera actually turned down the role, the title role in Octopussy to play Fatima Blush in Never Say Never Again because she wanted to work with Connery. So again, Connery, we're we're in the 80s now and he's got that star power, he's still pulling people in. What, instead of Maud Adams? Yeah. That's interesting. Fat, I mean, she is the best thing in Never Say Never Again. I she's would fantastic. Say, she really is. Mile, yeah, yeah. Every time she's on screen, it's it's great. Yeah. Uh, another another nice nugget of information. It'd be the last film where Sean Connery is clean shaven on screen. Interesting. There you go. Yeah. That's very interesting. So yeah, as it was going head to head with Octopussy. The media, the press, they were going full on with the Battle of the Bonds head to head and trying to drag the two of them into this, slagging each other off, you know. But it didn't work because they've they've been friends for a long time and they didn't want to let any of that get personal. So they made it very clear in interviews and you can go and look at these. They're on YouTube and you can see both of them are saying we're not getting into that. We're not getting drawn into that. They also made um, a gentleman's agreement to not release the, the films at the exact same time. Um, they didn't want to harm each other's product, um, which maybe is not what the production companies really wanted with, with that. But, mm. you know, Roger Moore and Sean Connery just weren't interested in that. Connery said, Roger plays it his way, I play it mine. I don't want to make comparisons. And he also suggested that they should pose for a photo together and issue a joint press statement just to get rid of any of those rumours of, of rivalry how, how could you be a rival with Roger <laughs> <laughs> impossible and 
Sean Connery and Roger Moore had chatted about, so you know at the end of Never Say Never Again, he winks at the screen. Well, there was another another different take on that, is where they wanted Roger Moore to come in and they'd be walking walking down the beach. Uh, Sean Connery would be walking, bump into someone and he'd look around and go, I recognise that guy. Turn round, it's Roger Moore. That's what pathetic. They, that's absolutely <laughs> pathetic. Ridiculous. <laughs> Um, but the the director Irving Kirshner uh, was having none of it, so it, it just went with, just went with the wink. <laughs> Although to be honest, I, I'm not as big as a fan of uh, Never Say Never Again as you. That probably would have quite liked it in there. I'd definitely rewatch it for that. I'm not a huge fan. Don't stop painting this picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, putting putting words into your mouth again. Do you know what? I actually don't mind his performance in this. I think it's it, it's absolutely fine. He's engaged. He's he wants. You can tell he wants to do it. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is the the, the biggest hurdle with um with a lot of the Connery films, isn't it? It's, mm. it's you can tell when he wants to do it. Yeah, exactly. So what happens after Never Say Never Again? Oh, what doesn't happen? <laughs> so. <laughs> In in the earlier overviews that I've done of films, I've kind of given a a, a, a short summary of some of the highlights. I'm not even going to do that now because he's done a lot of films after Never Seen Ever Again. 25 films he's done. And, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, you know all of these films. They're, they're massive films. It's not like, you know, he's not disappeared into the ether. Uh, you look at... Sorry, Brendan. I'm talking about Brosnan here. But <laughs> Brosnan has done a lot of films that nobody has ever heard of. He's he's done a lot of kind of um, you know those straight to DVD films and things like that. How dare Connery you. really has just done hit after hit, and some of these are phen- phenomenal films. I'll just I'll just go through them and um, you can basically shout if you like it. I think you'll like most of them. Highlander, nineteen eighty six. He plays uh, Juan Sanchez Villa Lobos Ramirez. One of one of my favourite films when I was younger. Not so much now, but I think he's brilliant in it. Uh, Name of the Rose. Fantastic Great, film, yeah, really, really good film. Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, obviously, probably it might even be his best work in comparison. It might even be better than Bond for for a lot of people. I love him in Last Crusade. He makes that film; it's fantastic. Um, Hood for Red October, brilliant, really good um, role in that film. Highlander to the Quickening, okay, maybe not so good. <laughs> um, Robin of Prince of Thieves. He's not really in that film very much, is he? He's cameo at best. Medicine Man, amazing film. I watched that the other night. Yeah, really good. Rising Sun, which in which he was also executive producer. Um, goes takes a takes a notch down now. First Night, seen that one? No, no, not quite so good. Uh, that's with what's his face, um, Richard Gere. Uh, now, now I've I don't know why I've picked this one. Dragonheart. It's an animated film. It's a real life one, but it's a CGI dragon. 1996, it was when CGI Jurassic Park and stuff had started to, you know, CGI got to the point where you could have a dragon that was mm. on screen with a real person. But I don't remember that. I think I saw that at cinema. I don't think it was very good. Uh, the Rock, BJ, I imagine you're a fan. How dare you? <laughs> I, I, I actually, having read this, I want to rewatch The Rock. I think I've seen it a couple of times when I was younger, but yeah. it's a good film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's good. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, Nicholas Cage, Sean Connery, what more? What more can you want? What more could you want, yeah. Uh, Avengers, tricky one. Thoughts on Avengers, people? Never seen it. Um, really? That seems odd. 
Yeah, I um, I've seen it once years ago, probably probably about twenty years ago, near to when it came it's out. Just, it's a bit of a shame, Avengers. It's um, his character's a bit annoying. He controls the weather to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's classic Avengers storyline, but yeah, he's basically controlling the weather to take over the world or something. Not particularly good. Uh, Entrapment, which is that's uh, very good. Jones. Yeah, all I can remember of Entrapment is her with the lasers. Yeah. Um, mm. Definitely don't remember the, anything happening in the film. And Finding Forrester. I think I mentioned this last time. I really want to watch that. I've never watched it. I didn't realise that was so late. That's 2000. Um, but that did really, really well um, uh, critically. Um, but The Rock, uh, Entrapment and Finding Forrester, he was a producer on. Uh, it was his executive producer on The Rock, actually. So, yeah, a lot of good films. And that's not all of them. I've just picked the, the highlights there. But you can see he's... I mean, he is grade A Hollywood star there. He's just taking... He's just done so many, so many films over that period. Well, there's a nice story about The Rock, actually. Um, Michael Bay, the director, he there were tensions between him and, and Walt Disney who were um, sort of supervising the production and overseeing it. Wait, Walt Disney's been dead for quite a long time. Walt Disney Studios. Not, no. not the Walt Disney, <laughs> not the man. Not the frozen head. <laughs> Um, and Michael Bay was preparing to leave for a meeting to go and see the executives and Sean Connery comes over in golfing attire and uh, so Connery's also producing the film Um, and he asked Bay where he's going and Bay said that I've got a meeting with the executives so Connery said oh can I come and uh, Bay said yeah and they arrived at the conference room and the executives' jaws, they dropped when they saw Connery just appear from behind Michael Bay. Um, and then, according to Bay, Connery stood up for him and insisted he was doing a great job and just leave him alone. So th- throwing his weight around, you know, to make sure, yeah. to look at look out well, for his director. To be honest, I if, if Connery came into a room and he wasn't famous, I'd probably still do what he said <laughs> anyway. It doesn't matter who's got yeah. Sean Connery. Um, but I missed one film out there, Butler. Um, which is the one that he, uh, the film that he, that he won the Oscar for. So in 1987, Sean Connery starred in Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, uh, the Prohibition era gangster film, stars Robert De Niro as Al Capone, Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness, and it would be the film that would finally win Sean Connery an Oscar. Uh, you guys seen this one? Yeah. Oh, many times. Mm-hmm. I actually watched it. Um... About a couple of months back, actually. Stone Cold, Stone Cold Classic, yeah. Mm. Uh, so he, uh, Connery, plays a beat cop called Jimmy Malone. He's basically an older cop who hasn't been promoted because he doesn't want to be a corrupt police officer. He very much um, has been held back by that, and he helps Elliot Ness to take down Al Capone. Connery, talking in an interview with Entertainment Weekly in 2017, said, I thought the part was very original and different and, has a, and a very interesting storyline. And... There's an interesting set visit. Roger Ebert visited Connery on set and he told him a little bit more about the film. He said, one of the things that attracted me to this whole project was the screenplay by David Mamet. I didn't know much about The Untouchables except for the TV series. And I remembered a certain style and glamour from a period when they used dialogue that would sound wrong if it was set either earlier or later. A certain stylized criminal dialogue that Mamet has written so well. The script is a revelation. So he really was taken with the script and just thought it was a it was a great project and they filmed that in um, in Chicago. It's got that mm. iconic line and um, which um, 
Sean Connery gives to Elliot Ness, which is, you want Capone, here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. Sounds better mm. when Connery does it. <laughs> Much better, yeah. 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 Um, and so when Costner later, Costner said, I told Sean when I, um, this is Kevin Costner talking from the set. I told Sean when I worked with him, I said, I, I think you're going to be nominated for an Academy Award for this. And some people would just say, oh, bullshit. But it's actually true. I did say that and I could see what was happening. So that's Costner. He could see that like this, what, this, this role was going to get him a awards recognition. Um, and Roger Ebert in his review later on said it's the best performance in the movie is by Sean Connery Um, Connery brings a human element to his character he seems to have had an existence apart from the legend of the untouchables and when he's on screen we can believe briefly that the prohibition era was inhabited by people and not just caricatures so yeah this film went on to win him an Oscar on the night of the 1988 Oscars he was presented with his award by Nicolas Cage and Cher (laughs) and exactly what you'd want well exactly that's who I want to give it to what more could you ask for and his speech is really good watch it on YouTube it's it's, it really is it really is interesting um he'd been to he talked in his speech he talks about how, how he'd been to the Academy Awards 30 years ago uh, previously that was his only other time he'd been to the Oscars and he said patience truly is an is a virtue but in this in winning this award it creates a certain dilemma because I had decided if I had the good fortune to win that I would give it to my wife who deserves it but this evening I discovered backstage that they're worth fifteen thousand dollars and now I'm not so sure <laughs> so he's just making a joke in his speech quite funny and he gets a three minute standing ovation interestingly just a little fun extra nugget of information on the same night he gives the award for the best visual effects um out i can't remember what wins it. i think it might be batteries not included or something like that but he comes out on the stage there's lasers behind him there's smoke and he comes up to the camera or comes up to the microphone and he goes the name's connery sean connery and it's just a great great moment it's worth watching um <laughs> But later on in an interview, he interestingly said, I didn't experience any great elation. Um, he said that he thought that he'd got the Oscar more for his body of work than just for The Untouchables. Mm. Which I thought was quite interesting. But it is a great mm. role and it just seems very... Um, I mean, he dies in the film, which is just Oscar bait, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Actors love that sort no, of stuff. Brilliant. And it is... I don't know if him if playing opposite... Um, who's the other guy? Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. <laughs> That, that might might help you uh, just the relative acting quality that ele- elevates it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you put anyone in that role they're going to be like he what he's such a good actor he's such a good actor that's um, unfair yeah. we'll cover that on the Did, Kevin Costner get one for bodyguard yeah <laughs> so winning the oscar for connery really catapulted him into the a list i mean obviously he'd always been a list but this really took him to a whole new level and really announced him as a as a you know a, an older actor um, of note really and it just really extended his career for another 20 years yeah and I think there's one one standout role which will you know loads of people's childhood will be built on it um, is the role of Indiana Jones's father Henry Jones which you know was absolutely fantastic so good that he received BAFTA and Golden Globe award nominations um, it was something that George Lucas wasn't necessarily swayed from the from the beginning 
Spielberg had his heart set on um, casting Connery and he had always been a fan of Connery's work with Bond and he basically, he said Connery was already the father of Indiana Jones since the series had sprung from the desire of Lucas and Spielberg to rival and outdo Connery's James Bond films. So, you know, this is a dream bit of casting for Spielberg to mm. get the man that they that they they want. Um, Lucas then gets on board as well once he sort of sees him take on the role. Yeah. Um, Connery did initially turn it down, though. There's only a 12-year age gap between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. Um, but Connery looked at the uh, the script and made a few revisions. You know, classic Connery wants to come in and see what the we'll script's all about. Yeah. Um, he said, I was bound to have fun with the role of a gruff Victorian Scottish father. Uh, Connery believed that he should be um, a match for his son. And he told Spielberg, whatever Indy had done, my character has done, and my character has done it better. So yeah, he signed on to the film in 1988 and the line she talks in her sleep was um, actually improvised it was meant to be revealed later on in the script Um, but he did it there and then because it made everyone laugh um, and it just it seems that it flowed so naturally Um, and Harrison Ford said it was amazing for me how far he got into the script and went after exploiting opportunities for character his suggestions to George at the writing stage really gave the character and the picture a lot more complexity and value than it had in the original screenplay. So it seems like the depth that he's added, which he's wanted his whole career, if we work our way back to the 60s, and you know he's, he's wanted to add character and strings to his bow. So it, yeah. it really paid off because I think it's ev- yeah. everyone you know recognises him in, in, that, in that role. He's, why un- he's just yeah, what fantastic. I, what I understand that when it was originally written, it was a more of a Yoda-esque sort of um, father mm. role. Yeah, so much more wise and sort of sedate. It could have but been when so they brought Connery in. It? it became the sort of the love rival thing, which I think is really funny. It just works so brilliant in that film. Yeah, yeah. and the fact that he that age difference it isn't that noticeable, but if you think about it, it it works better that they're closer because they can. If he was a lot older, it just wouldn't play out like that. It's it's probably one of the... It's just such a brilliant relationship in cinema. When you look at the three... Indi- oh, the, I won't class the Ford one, but that trilogy, the original Indiana Jones trilogy, that third one is just so good in that trilogy. And it is because of, of Connery. He just makes that film. And he makes Harrison Ford's character better in it because it just rounds him off as well. It's it's Yeah, it's just fantastic in that. I I'd I'd say that's probably almost, if not more, defining role for him than than, than Bond, especially at this era. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. I, I always think with um with Connery when you look at him in um, Last Crusade, when you watch him now, he's he's not actually that old in it, really, is he? He's still quite like mobile and stuff. Whereas um you know nowadays you'd expect quite a lot of a much older actor to to play Maybe that role, but fifty eight, um, yeah. Yeah, he's not that old at all. I mean, how old was uh, Harrison Ford when he played Indiana Jones in the fourth one? <laughs> probably older, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, what, how yeah. old is Tom Cruise now? I mean, he's probably not that yeah, far yeah. off. Mm. Yeah, and, and Sean Connery is meant to be playing an old man that can't do anything, but he's <laughs> yeah, he's 
Amazing. So just a short one here. This is a little little blip in um, Connery's life uh, in 1989, where um, he he got the sexiest man alive uh, in People magazine. I don't know if you know about People magazine. It's an American magazine, isn't it? We don't get it over here. Yeah, but that sexiest man alive is is something that travels around the globe, isn't it? it that, it's a big it's a deal, big deal, but it, I mean, it's not. Uh, if you, if I, I'll give you a list of the other people that are, that have won it, it's base. It's it's not that big a deal. Um, so in nineteen eighty nine, he was age fifty nine, so he was the oldest person to be voted world's sexiest man in People magazine. Um, there's a few other accolades he got as well after that. In nineteen ninety nine, age sixty nine, he got the um, he got voted the sexiest man of the century, and in two thousand five, he got voted. Um, Britain's sexiest pensioner at 75 years old. Although I'm fairly certain he's not claimed his pension. Um, the, I don't know. Uh, I bet he has. He <laughs> probably <laughs> has, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, as I say, the um, it's, it's it's an accolade which is it's not really that good. If, if you look through the list of it, it's basically whoever that year was the most popular person. Um, so you've got obviously Tom Cruise in there, Patrick Swayze, um Nick Nolte, Richard Gere, um, Keanu Reeves—it's just—it's just everyone's in there basically. There's—it's not—it's not the most exciting thing. And I tried to find some sort of interviews or um, things that he'd said about it, and he doesn't—he's he, not really talked about that accolade very much. Definitely not in comparison <laughs> to his Oscar win. So yeah, not 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 a big one. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's, it's it, it it crops up in all of the kind of bios about him as well, which doesn't seem necessary. I think you'd be more vocal if you'd won one. If I won one, hmm. I'd take anything, mate. <laughs> I, I think that the 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 relative benefit of of winning that award is probably a little bit different between me and me and Sean. But um, yeah, I don't. It definitely didn't seem like he was like, putting posters up on his wall of it. No, but the accolades do keep coming and. It just really signals his sort of status as a as a star at that time. In 1990, BAFTA hosted a tribute as a lifetime achievement award to Sean. You can watch it in line. Uh, I watch it online in full. It's brilliant. It's presented by Michael Aspel. It's an hour long, and it has features tributes from loads of people he's worked with, including Ursula Andress, Richard Attenborough, Honor Blackmer, Michael Caine, Billy Connolly, Kevin Costner. And Harrison Ford, who we just mentioned, there's a really funny bit which um, talks about his golf, which is presented by Bruce Forsyth and Jimmy Tarbuck. And they go around golf courses talking to lots of famous golfers about Connery's swing. And it's, it's really funny. Uh, and Billy Connolly's bit's really good as well. And Billy Connolly is someone he was very, who was very close to Sean Connery in his lifetime. That same year in 1990, he was awarded the Freedom of the City of Edinburgh, which actually is quite rare for it to be given out. I know sometimes you think of these things as sort of token gestures, but actually in Edinburgh, it's quite rare to be given. In 1991, France awarded him the Légion d'Honneur, which again is a huge accolade in France. There, He was also received the Kennedy Centre on Honours in the United States in 1999. Uh, that was presented to him by Bill Clinton. But in 1998, he was presented with a BAFTA fellowship and that was uh, presented to him by Princess Anne and Billy Connolly. And actually, if you watch that clip, he's quite emotional. It really means a lot to him to have been recognised by his peers in the British film industry, who obviously he's done a lot for himself. Then fast forward a little bit. In 1998, he was at the heart of a political row um, 
uh, when it was widely reported that the Labour Party, who was in power at the time, had blocked plans to award him with a knighthood due to his support for the SNP. It's quite a complicated political story, this. I won't go into too much detail for it, but it's alleged that Connery's knighthood had been blocked by the Secretary of State for, Secretary of State for Scotland, Donald Dewar, um, after he'd been put forward. Um, and it had been approved, but when Labour had come to power, this guy, Donald Dewar, had, had blocked it. At the time, the Prime Minister's press spokesperson denied that they'd been involved in any briefings against Mr Connery, which had blocked him from getting a knighthood. And it says it's absolutely and completely untrue to say Downing Street was involved in a briefing against Sean Connery. That's completely untrue. So that was 1998. um, And it's believed that it was, you know, he was blocked because of his longstanding and vocal support for the SNP. Um, He donated a lot to the party over the years. And then also um, it was rumoured that his... um, tax exile status as well as the remarks that he'd made again about violence towards women also counted against him getting a knighthood and had been part of the reason why he'd been blocked so in a follow-up interview connery said i'm fed up being told i don't pay taxes i pay taxes more than most people in the uk connery told the bbc today program i don't like the turn it has taken now when they drag up something from my past about my violence towards women and then uh, this is when he sort of had to then again deny that he'd said it was acceptable to hit women, saying it was it was stupid comments from the past. Anyway, eventually it all got cleared. The, um, the political row got put to bed. And in 2000, he was knighted in uh, Edinburgh's Holy, Holyrood Palace. He wore full Highland dress, dark green MacLeod tartan. And Sashawn emerged from the ceremony to meet reporters and cheering crowds who had gathered to see him. His wife, Michelin, and brother Neil were by his side. So obviously they've put OK Connery behind them. Um, Operation Kid Brother, which will do a podcast on its own, I think. I think I think most people have put it behind them now. <laughs> so on the day, Connery said, it's one of, my, one of the proudest days of my life. He was 69 at the time. Uh, it means a great deal for it to happen in Scotland. I imagine that was part of the um, agreement when he finally was given it that, you know, he would do it on his own terms. So, yeah, that was that was the year 2000. Sir Sean Connery. So Sir Sean goes on to make a film in 2003 called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Here we go. Now, <laughs> now the podcast starts. Now we, we're cooking on gas. Um, have you both seen this? I've seen it many times. Yes. I love, I love that film. Um, I mean this. This is a it's a superhero comic book film set in. Yeah, it's based on a based on a quite a quite a popular comic. Yeah, book. yeah, the comic yeah. book's very popular. It's Alan film. Alan Moore, isn't it? Alan Moore, yeah, yeah. Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. So, yeah, Sean Connery plays Alan uh, Quatermain. The, the the concept is a it's a cast of people from real life and uh, fiction that create this team of superheroes. But the production itself did not go well. Connery had a lot of disputes with the director, Stephen Norrington. Um, Norrington didn't attend the opening party. Um, Connery was asked, where the, where's the director? He said, check the local asylum. Uh, Norrington 
didn't like the supervision from the studio. He felt uncomfortable with large crews. Connery found all this really, really frustrating. And he could see that production was going off the rails. And he said that uh, the director should be locked up for insanity. So there's a recurring theme there. You know, he clearly doesn't get on with Stephen Norrington. But Connery still spent a lot of effort and time trying to salvage the film through the edit. And, you know, he said it was a nightmare. The director should never have been given $185 million. So absolutely huge budget, and which uh, it's a struggle to see it on, on screen, you know, where it's gone, you know. So Jason Fleming, who was in the film, was asked about these bust-ups and, and to see what he thought. And he said it was actually much worse than reported. You know when someone in your class is getting told off and your toes curl in your black Clark shoes? That's how it was. My favourite bust-up was in Venice. The League had to walk from Captain Nemo's boat down the street, Magnificent Seven style. At the end of the take, Sean shouted to Norrington, What? You want us to do that again? He replied, For $18 million, I don't think it's too much to ask for you to walk down a road. To which Connery's reply was unprintable. So there is a lot of great scene though. Great scene. <laughs> There's a lot of beef on this on this set, and um, so much so, this ultimately leads to him deciding to end his career, basically. But not yet, because he had some films to turn down, didn't he? Oh, yes, he did have a few films to turn down. And to be honest, I take these with a pinch of salt. Most of the sources that these have come from are various film websites and things that have said he's you know been involved in various talks but i've not found anything that's kind of concrete evidence that he's he's been associated with these but you can kind of you know you're making a film like lord of the rings you're probably going to go for people like sean they've probably got a list of people that are trying to hit up they're going to speak to them so lord of the rings um a 2012 report glenn's at connery um missed out on quite a lot of money for lord of the rings as well as a sizable stake in the franchise's box office draw uh, for playing the role of Gandalf, which you can imagine that they probably did speak to him about that. If if you know you've got that sort of big budget film, he's a bit of a no brainer, really. If you got him in, the, he'd work quite well in it. Um, Enemy reported that Connery never understood the script for Lord of the Rings, um, and Connery claimed that he couldn't quite make sense of the story, though he did praise McKellen's performance as Gandalf. Jurassic Park, uh, apparently, Connery was in the running for uh, playing John Hammond. However, um, Connery's asking price was the, uh, way too high for what they what they could pay for it, which sounds it must be really high because I imagine the budget <laughs> yeah. for Jurassic Park was pretty big. Um, I imagine they, it, it might have been like Dimes Are Forever, where they get um, John Connery in and then all of the dinosaurs look absolutely rubbish <laughs> <laughs> just because they've got Connery. Um, well, that, when you think the about Matrix, it, that, this one. Well, Jurassic Park is a low budget cast, right? It's n- because when, yeah. when you if you think about it. Uh, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, they're mid-tier stars, right? aren't yes, they? So they have yeah, cast yeah. it mid-tier, and so Connery would have pushed it over. But when you look at yeah. R- Richard Attenborough, Richard Attenborough? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He look, He's white beard, he's Scottish, he's Connery, right? I mean, it's yeah. obviously a small, oh, like, hobbity he, version well, of him. I, but like, I, th- I think Richard Attenborough is far 
he's just perfect for the role. I think Conor yes. has been far too commanding in that. Yeah, you're right because you've got it with the John Hammond. I mean, obviously, I'm obsessed with Jurassic Park. With John John Hammond, it's his it's his uh, foolish ways that are the downfall, yeah. and it, to have Connery doing that. Yeah. You know, I would I wouldn't John put it past. Isn't the hero? He's the he's the he's not the baddie, but he's just he's just the one who's me- messed. It it's up. his vanity that Con- ruins the project, yeah. isn't it? Connery yeah. couldn't play that. Connery would have to be the hero in it. He'd well, the thing to... is, if it was Connery and a raptor escapes, Connery would go out, get the raptor, and break its neck or something. Like shout at it. <laughs> and Harrison <laughs> Ford was wanted for um, for their Sam Neill role as well. Alan Grant, Harrison Ford was the first choice. Yeah. For that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so then we come on to not quite as exciting, and thank goodness this never happened. The Matrix uh, is the, playing the architect role. Um, apparently, reports say that uh, Connery did, simply didn't understand the film's overall narrative. Which, to be honest, if you didn't understand Lord of the Rings, you're not going to understand the Matrix, are you? Um, and I mean, the role of the architect in that film—it's not a big role, is it? It's not—you don't want to get involved in that. Um, also, Harry Potter. Um, which thinking about it, when I read this, I was thinking, oh, really? But then, yeah, they would have spoken to him, wouldn't they? Mm. Uh, the headmaster, obviously, Dumbledore. Um, too fantastic for uh, Connery's tastes. The Scottish actor claimed that uh, he had no interest in joining a children's movie about wizards. No problem, Sean. Uh, <laughs> this is an interesting one. Rick Deckard in Blade Runner. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was... He was um, in discussions or it was tipped to um, play the role um, as well as Jack Nicholson Paul Newman and Clint Eastwood all in talks for the for the role as well um, but obviously Sean turned it down but that's interesting because obviously he plays Harrison Ford's dad but the age is probably so close that he could have done that might have been quite good in that actually Yeah. Uh, and the last one I read about was Simon Gruber in the second Die Hard film mm. Die Hard with a Vengeance didn't find any major information about that but um Fairly glad he didn't do that as well. A role that he did didn't turn down because uh, he got one million good reasons not to uh, was returning to play James Bond for one final time with From Russia with Love, the video game released in two thousand and five. So Connery returned as James Bond after a twenty-two year absence, voicing the EA game uh, that was released by EA for the PlayStation Two, Xbox, Nintendo GameCube, and PSP. Remember the PSP? That was dreadful, wasn't it? Still got PSP, mate. <laughs> Big fan. So obviously the game was based on the book and the film. It had a whole new story, though, written by Bruce Fierstein, who we've talked about before, written GoldenEye and, and, and a bunch of um, extra Bond stuff. It brings in elements from other films, including the DB5 and the jetpack from Thunderball. Uh, and interesting, I didn't know this, but it has an extra Bond girl. Um, Natasha Bedingfield plays the Bond girl in it. Wow, <laughs> as well as okay. uh, Tanya. Um... When we started doing this podcast, I, I no, probably one of the least likely people to be mentioned on it was is Natasha Benningfield. Well, maybe Daniel Benningfield. Well, wait, um, wait until we get to Benningfield. Yeah, yeah. Adelia <laughs> Smith and Natasha Benningfield. Where will we go next? <laughs> <laughs> so the game, there's no Spectre because obviously due to the Kevin McClory legal situation um, and uh, Spectre has been replaced by an oct- a um, organisation called Octopus. So very literal in their mm. uh, replacement. Um, yeah. But yeah, so he was rumoured to have been played $1 million just to do the voiceover. He recorded wow. it in the Bahamas um, at his home. <laughs> so really, literally. <laughs> in, in his bed. Literally phoned it in. 
But Connery said at a time, uh, as an artist, I see this as another way to explore the creative process. Video games are an extremely, extremely popular form of entertainment today. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it all fits together. So, yeah. Sounds like that was his motivation. But yeah, so in a review for the game, I haven't played it, but um, this is a review by GameSpot. It says, Sean Connery returns to play Bond once again, but that fact is something of a mixed blessing. For sure, it's of great nostalgic value to have the original Bond back in the tux delivering those classic lines. But the truth is that Connery is not a young man anymore, nor does he sound like one. His thick Scottish accent permeates every line far more than it ever did during his days as Bond on film. And at times it actually feels like he hasn't fully committed to the role. I, I mean, I've played it and I agree. There's, it's jarring <laughs> because it's they've obviously doing from Russia with Love in terms of how he looks. But it's his voice at whatever age he was then in his 70s, I guess. In his 70s, um, yeah. You, and you can hear it. It's very jowly. I wonder if it made enough money to actually be successful. Well, I bought it, so that's one. That's one, one you're sale. The, yeah, you're the only person who I've <laughs> ever met who's who's played it. <laughs> Sir Billy, oh my word. So, Connery receives the American Film Institute's, Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award on the 8th of June, 2006. And he confirms that he is retiring from acting. He is disillusioned with, and I quote, idiots now making film in Hollywood. So that's that's what he cited as his reason for packing it in. He said, I've retired for good. Uh, I'm okay. I feel well. And I'm working on a history book. So there you go. However, he was asked about f- the fourth Indiana Jones film. And he said, I get asked this question so often. I thought it best to make an announcement. I thought long and hard about it. And if anything could have pulled me out of retirement, it would have been an Indiana Jones film. I love working with Stephen and George. And it goes without saying that it is an honour to have Harrison as my son. But in the end, retirement is just too damned fun. I do, however, have one bit of advice for Junior. Demand that the critters be digital, the cliffs be low... And for goodness sake, keep that whip by your side at all times in case you need to escape from the stunt coordinator. <laughs> so very good. Very, very nice quote there from him. But uh, it seemed like, you know, he could have been tempted. I, uh, I read some more stuff about him when he was talking about that. And he just it just I think the character wasn't right that he'd done enough with that character that mm. he could. And you can see that. He just wouldn't want to ruin it, would you? And Sean Sean doesn't want to ruin characters. You can see this from Bond onwards that he he just uh, hold on, I've forgotten about Highlander. But um <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't want to um he's he's careful of the characters and I think that was what he says is the main things is that there's nowhere to go with that character after um Last Crusade. Yeah. Which is why he came out of retirement briefly in twenty twelve to play a character called Sir Billy. Um which is the first ever Scottish CGI animated feature film. And it was made by a husband and wife team called Sasha Hartman and Tessa Hartman. And it features Alan Cumming, Patrick Doyle, Kieran Elliott and Sean Connery playing the lead role. So they knew a friend 
uh, a businessman who was a friend of Sean Connery's and just thought, why not, let's ask and see what happens. And uh, they passed all the, the details on to him and he he did it. Um, and I've watched the trailer. <laughs> and the animation is one of the worst. Bearing in mind it's 2012, it's very crude animation. <laughs> I might give it a go. It's got 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's in an wow. elite, elite club there. Impressive. Um, but the movie itself does feature a lot of references. Sir Billy drives a, a car that looks very much like an Aston Martin. Um, but he is a, he's an old skateboarding um, guy that goes above and beyond to save the town that are fighting this villainous policeman. Um, it's got talking animals uh, mixed with Sir Billy. I think Sir Billy's a human. He looks like a human in the uh, in the trailer. I'm assuming we're going to be doing the Sir Billy episode soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'd quite like to do that. <laughs> um, uh, so any 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 discussion that is has I assume he's a human in it <laughs> is uh, is worth worth going into more depth. Honestly, if you watch the trailer. He, he he might not be because he hangs around with like beavers and other sort of creatures. So right, okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's how he chose to end his film career. Well, it may have been the end of his film career, but he didn't stop doing stuff. Um, because uh, after he retired from acting, he focused quite heavily on his other loves in life, which of course were his family, but also his hobbies. Um, one thing that I didn't know, which um, I've from doing this podcast he's he's massively into tennis um i didn't realize this before I, I just thought that he may have been spotted at a couple of tennis matches but um since his retirement um sport is one of the few things that he's actually been seen at so that's the, like the only time he ever comes out into public is when he's at sporting events um he he's always at uh, Wimbledon and he was always at New York um, watching tennis. Uh, and in fact, his final public appearance was at the 2017 US Open. Um, so uh, yeah, he was he was always at the kind of the, the big matches. Um, uh, he's a good friend of Sir Andy Murray because um, obviously the Scottish connection. It was everything that seems to happen with um, Connery largely comes back to Scotland. A lot of his friends are Scottish. A lot of the things he does is, is Scottish. So, um, yeah, he's, he was big friends with Sir Andy Murray and he was always watching Murray's career and, and seeing him at the actual matches as he played and, and, and won them. And there's an interesting story as well about how there's a press conference with um, Andy Murray and the journalists are asking questions and Connery walks in with Alex Ferguson and um, Andy Murray's mum and they just, like, shout they're at each other. They're heckling him, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they're just having a laugh and just and, and he's like... I think he's asking them questions and they're just ignoring him and they're just shouting and they just leave again. So um, yeah, it's quite a nice, uh, quite quite a nice view of uh, Sean in his later life just enjoying himself at tennis matches. But outside of tennis, obviously golf is the big one. So we all know that he's a big fan of golf and we've talked about him in in not even the Connery podcast. I think some of the other earlier ones we've done. Um, and as a bit of a, uh, I think we talked about how the first time he got into golf was during Goldfinger, but. I read somewhere, uh, it's a quote by him actually, which it sounds like it's a bit earlier, where he says, uh, I started after Dr. No, not so much because Bond and Fleming were golfers, but because I couldn't play football as much as I used to, and golf is a game you can play until you're 90. So um sounds like he was he may have got into it during Goldfinger, but he started a bit before. Uh, and he said, I find it terribly frustrating, but I'm really getting the, to the best stage of my golf game now. 
I'm really getting near five or six times I've broken 80 and at last I know what I'm doing and I get a tremendous sense of achievement and enjoyment out of it. I think it is one of the most important games in the world. Um, and he, even to the point where he said he would have loved to have given it a go at the, the, the pro circuit um, if he wasn't too old because he, he, when he was getting really into it and he retired to um, a place where uh, Lifford, uh, Lifford K in the Bahamas, which is basically a golf resort, um so yeah he's he was really into it late, later in life um and uh we we saw that he uh, i think it was jack nicholas jack nicholas said that um he was really good and he, he could have almost gone pro if mm. he'd if he tried to um he's also after a few years after goldfinger he, he helped set up um one of the first ever pro arms in scotland which is like a, a tournament um championship uh and it's a big deal. The first uh, over twenty thousand fans came to the first event, which had people like Jimmy Tarbuck, Kenny Dalgleish, Henry Cooper, Eric Sykes, all playing. Uh, all these kind of celebrity golfers that he was friends with. Um, and golf was also just before I finish um, one of the reasons why he got to know um, his 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 wife um, uh, Michelin. Um, because they played together in a, a partner tournament in the King of Morocco's Cup in 1970, uh, which he actually won. Um, and obviously, golf then played a massive part in his life because they retired together in this Lifford, Lifford K in the Bahamas where they played golf all of the time. Um, so yeah, golf, really big deal for him. And uh, there's so many, if you if you search for Sean Connery golfing photos, there's some fantastic shots of him playing golf. He just looks so happy and relax doing it it's well worth having a look through those uh, but yeah he played golf all, all the way up until um all, all till his death so on the 31st of october 2020 sean connery died peacefully in his sleep at home in the bahamas having been unwell for some time according to his son jason uh, he'd actually been suffering from dementia for a number of years and his death certificate said that he died of pneumonia, heart problems and old age. He was 89 at the time. Michelin told the Mail on Sunday, I was with him all the time and he just slipped away. He had dementia and it took a toll on and it took its toll on him. He got his final fit wish to s- slip away without any fuss. It was no life for him. He was not able to express himself latterly. And then later she said that his um, he would be cremated in a private service in the Bahamas and that his ashes would be scattered in the Bahamas and also in his homeland of Scotland when the coronavirus restrictions allow them to travel. Um, and Co- Jason Connery said um, that his father had had many of his family who could, who could be in the Bahamas around him when he died overnight. And obviously Bahamas is a well-established James Bond location. So I think it just becomes even more poignant now um, to know that that's where where he passed away. Yeah. So, yeah, his um, publicist said that there would be a private ceremony followed by a memorial yet to be planned once the virus has ended. So there may be some sort of Sean Connery memorial event in the future once coronavirus restrictions have finally lifted if you're listening to this in the future they may already have uh, lifted and it may have happened but um yeah so i'm just going to run few i mean obviously everyone and his and his uh, and his dog in hollywood paid tribute to connery just countless people wanted to sort of pay tribute to the man who had died but i'll just run through those 
as this is the James Bond A to Z, from his fellow James Bond stars. So George Lazenby said, Sean Connery as James Bond inspired me personally, but he seems to have encapsulated an age, the 60s. I met Sean a couple of times and he I was pleased he'd given my Bond on Her Majesty's Secret Service the seal of approval. To me, the most important thing was his work that it was that his work went far beyond Bond into charity, into family, into politics, into golf. A man after my own heart, a great actor, a great man, and underappreciated underappreciated artist has left us. So that was Lazenby. Dalton um, said, uh, "Sean was a wonderful presence, a great leading man." Pierce Brosnan said, Sir Sean Connery, you were my greatest James Bond as a boy and as a man, you became James Bond himself. You cast a long shadow of cinematic splendour that will live on forever. And then Daniel Craig, obviously the current James Bond, said, It's with great sadness that I heard of of the passing of one of the true greats of cinema. Sir Sean Connery will be remembered as Bond and so much more. He defined an era and a style. The wit and charm he portrayed on screen would be could be measured in megawatts. He helped create the modern blockbuster. Wherever he is, I hope there is a golf course. Touching sentiments there from Daniel Craig. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's it really. Obviously, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli pay tribute to him as well, despite you know the ongoing feud between Cubby and and Sean. Um, they obviously. Uh, were sad to hear about his passing as well. They said he revolutionised the world with his gritty and witty portrayal of the sexy and charismatic secret agent. He is undoubtedly largely responsible for the success of the film series and we shall be forever grateful to him. And I guess for us, that's his legacy, right? Without Sean Connery, as we started this whole podcast saying, without Sean Connery, there would be no James Bond film series. No, no. if they'd have picked someone else to do it, it could have been a two film series, that's it. It's uh, yeah. It's just hard to put into words the impact he's had um, on film, but particularly on James Bond. Mm. Um, I guess I'll, I'll wrap things up with a tribute from Roger Moore from Beyond the Grave. This is from Roger's book Bond on Bond. He said, "Who is the best Bond apart from myself?" I modestly inquire. It has to be Sean. Sean was Bond. He created Bond. He embodied Bond, and because of Sean, Bond became an instantly recognisable character the world over. He was rough, tough, mean and witty. Of course, it was an alter ego he didn't always appreciate, but it was one I'd like to think he was ultimately proud of, as he was a bloody good 007. Even from the grave, Roger just... He's got it right, hasn't he? Pure class. Pure class. Yeah. So is there anything else to say about Sean Connery? I mean, we are going to mention him a lot more as we go through the alphabet. You know, we've we've still got all of his films. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen special, which we'll be doing. Uh... <laughs> okay, we've still got all of his Bond films to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we will, again, be talking about him. But, I mean, like you say, it's hard, it is hard to put into words just how monumental it, it, it is. We don't have film stars like him anymore, do we? Absolutely no disrespect not, no, to no. Daniel Craig, but we just don't no. have stars like Sean Connery anymore. No, I I also think that he's 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 very different than any of the other Bonds because when he was doing it, it wasn't it wasn't our Bond. He was Bond. That was it. It mm-hmm. wasn't like anybody who came after they had to do what he did or find a new way to do it. None of that happened when he was around. He was just 
he did he set the whole thing up and I think that make, meant he, he's very different than all the other ones for many many reasons and um, he is also the he's he's the blueprint if whenever a new actor comes on board they yeah. the, the, that's the bond that they look to and go right nobody okay, uses let's... anyone else as a blueprint no absolutely not no yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode about Sean Connery. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you want to contact us on email, our email is podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Or you can contact us on social media at jamesbondatoz. It's on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And please, wherever you're listening, leave us a good review. Um, let's um, leave a review. Uh, share your the podcast with your friends, with your enemies, with your henchmen. Um, and please, if you've got henchmen, let us know. We'd love to speak to you. <laughs> we would love to speak to you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. James Bond will return with the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.